Today's scripture reading is from John 1, 1 through 5. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, this is on page 886. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we are lighting our fourth Advent candle ahead of Christmas. We remember the Savior King who came down to earth to usher in a kingdom of grace, and we wait for his return when all things will be made whole and right. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, God with us in our doubting, in our failing, in our struggles, in our waiting, God with us when we're flat on the ground. You and me, his created beings that bear his image, were a part of the greatest story, the love story of God to his people. God is waiting for more and more of his created beings to turn to him and receive his unconditional love and forgiveness. Like Mary, Elizabeth, Zachariah, Joseph, and all the disciples, prophets, and saints who have walked before us, may we follow and listen to the calling of the Holy Spirit, living lives, giving glory to God. Good morning. Um, the scripture that Steph just read, wanted to use that as a backdrop before we go into this morning's message to keep that in mind as we talk through some things that are actually based out of Matthew 2 that we talked about last week. Just going to continue on with those verses there, but wanted to keep John 1 as our backdrop. It's a week before Christmas. For some of us, it's a joyous time, and for others of us, it's a time of dread. I recognize that. We all come from different backgrounds where we experience this time of year differently. And so, if anything, it's still a familiar time, a familiar time of year for, for all of us, even though we all have different types of experiences with it. And whether it's the songs that we sing this time of year or these decorations that you just kind of see seasonally coming up that come up at Costco around Halloween or, you know, exchanging gifts or whatever it is, time with family, um, all these different traditions that you might participate in. There are just these things that you experience this time of year that aren't experienced in other times of year. And it seems that mental illness is at an all-time high. It seems that more people feel less good about themselves today, even though the investment into ourselves is greater than any other period of time in history when mental illness is pretty much accepted as opposed to even a decade ago where it was maybe taboo. And even though we have all these resources, it just doesn't seem that we're getting ahead of something so that causes so much struggle in our lives. And so in terms of jobs, in terms of all these things that are happening with us, just not the greatest in terms of the feelings of like an all-time high in your life and why is that? 
why is this happening even though we're so well resourced and we have so much at our fingertips in terms of how we can get help and support and things like that. And so I, I want us to kind of identify with those who experience the first Christmas because there's these, there are these different characters within that first Christmas, whether it's the shepherds or the wise men from the east or even King Herod himself. And let's first take a look at these shepherds because some of you, some of us, may identify with these people who aren't all that well respected, who are looked down upon in society. And in terms of jobs, they're just kind of the lowest rung of kind of a corporate ladder. And maybe you identify with them, or maybe you identify with these wise men of the East and that you're well-educated. You know, you, you have means to do things like travel. Um, you, you have access to things, and you have mobility to do things, and they are people who lived quite comfortably. And even if these people, whether it's the shepherds or, or these wise men, even if they didn't appear in the Christmas story, the story is still the same. The story still happens. But the thing with these people is they give us more details in terms of what they mean in this story. And so a lot of the stories we hear, a lot of these carols that we sing derive from these very people, even though they aren't the most essential pieces proven by the fact that they're not even written about in the other two Gospels um, in, in Mark or in John. They're not mentioned at all. And so this story of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, they all still happen with or without these characters in the story. And, and do they really make a difference in the Christmas story? Yes, right? They do. They, they do appear in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They do speak to people who can relate to this very wide spectrum of those of us who who are here like either magi or like those who are the shepherds. And no matter who you are and what your background is, there, there's still this need for Jesus. And we see this from those who have the lowest kind of reputations to those who have high regard, like the wise men of the East, or like even a King Herod, who's the, the highest of society. Still a need for Jesus. So why are these people part of the Christmas story. Shepherds were out there doing their, their lowly job watching sheep in the Bethlehem fields. And some of you may know these backgrounds in regards to how shepherds were viewed, and some of you may not, so we'll just go over them. But they were considered the lowest in terms of status. They were considered the lowest in terms of class. And even though what they did was a really special thing. They were still looked down upon by society. What did they actually do? Well, they were caring for these sheep, protecting these sheep, but it wasn't sheep for necessarily food or for their wool. The sheep that they were taking care of were to be these sacrificial offerings to the altars of the Jerusalem temple according to Old Testament laws. So these are special sheep. These aren't just like sheep where, yeah, just shave them down. We're going to use their wool or just butcher them. We're, we're going to have these for, for lunch. These were more than a food source. These were more than source of wool for rugs or clothing or whatever it may be. These lambs were to be without blemish as a sacrifice for people's sins. 
So these shepherds needed to make sure these guys were taken care of, that they weren't attacked by animals and then cause a blemish, that they wouldn't get into accidents, that, that things would, ha would happen to them so that they wouldn't be worthy of sacrifice anymore. It's funny because these shepherds were rarely in synagogue. They were not allowed in the temple sacrifices, even though they were tending to these sheep, because these guys were considered unclean. And so some of them had not looked at scriptures for a while, as some of these were uneducated people. And some may be wondering if the sacrifices made in Jerusalem, if, does that even include me, even though I'm taking care of these sheep? And in Bethlehem was born Jesus, the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so there were these symbolic pictures of the gospel who were in front of these shepherds, just as there are pictures in front of us today of God working something out in your life, that he's just showing us in live picture form. And maybe you're like these shepherds, wondering, what's to become of my life? And you're just kind of sitting there, whether it's under the stars like these shepherds or it's just in your room or in front of the television or wherever you find yourself sitting in front of doing what you're doing, whether that's a student or at your job that you might even find mundane and wondering, is this all life has to offer me? Is this what life is all about? Am I going to get any further? What, what is the meaning of life? Because really, I'm kind of lonely and no one really understands me and I don't see much of a future for me because I'm just not considered. And maybe some of you can relate to the shepherds in this way. People who have really good questions like, who am I? Am I significant? Is my life significant? And they observed all these other people around them who they saw as more significant. They have better jobs. They get paid more. They're not just sitting out here hanging out with sheep all night long and sacrificing them for sins, but then I can't even go to a temple. I, I don't need, my testimony is not even accepted in court. I'm considered unclean. I'm just a nobody. So what, what's going for me? There's nothing in life that's going for me. Even when I say something, my testimony is not accepted in court. And so I can imagine a lot of people like this with these thoughts and these questions for their own life, just wondering about their own significance. And yet, we have the Gospels of Matthew and Luke highlighting them, right in the beginning, showcasing them, that the Gospel is for them, and that the Gospel is for you, and that God sees you, that you are significant, that you are not forgotten, that there is a meaningful purpose in your life and Jesus is coming back again for you you may be living your life just day to day wondering where you fit in just like these shepherds may have felt and God makes them part of a story and just as you are part of this greater story he is inviting you into a bigger part of the story we're pretty good at covering things up that we don't want to show, aren't we? I mean, all you have to do is look at social media pages and you show what you want to show, which is usually the good stuff. The good stuff you ate, the nice places you visit, you know, all these kind of things. It doesn't really show the not-so-good stuff. You, you kind of hide behind 
your own posts. And, and people tend to shy away from direct confrontation. They like to type things out. And they're very opinionated when you let them type things out. But if you go face to face, they don't really talk to you. But like, wow, they have a lot of courage to type things out and send things to you. All the time. Right? It's kind of crazy. And then people just kind of continue with their mundane lives, just like watching sheep. But every, every once in a while they get a little brave and they want to type things out and send it over to you. God pulls them into the story too. Those who are cowards to deal with things up front. But he pulls them into. He invites them in as well. And he invites them to be witnesses when no one else would. When they don't have a voice, he invites them in. He shows them angels, and not many people get to see angels. And the lowly have a place in the gospel. He brings them into it. He invites them into it, into the story. They were gifted a testimony of how they came to Jesus. Isn't it funny? Because their testimony is not accepted in court, and yet God's saying, I'm going to give you one to tell everybody, and they're not going to even believe you, but I'm giving it to you first. It's incredible how he brings us in. And this is one of the best things, actually, about being a pastor, a shepherd, is, is I get to hear the stories of how people came to know Jesus Christ. And whether that is directly from them or from somebody indirectly that I just hear those stories, that hearing about how people came to Jesus is the most amazing thing, is the, the most honoring, privileged thing that I get to do. How they became a part of a greater story, no matter what their background is, no matter where they came from, no matter what kind of environment they grew up in, that they are now part of this greater story and they belong in it. That you belong. And if you don't know Christ yet, you can belong. He's in inviting you to that. That you have a place in the greatest story ever told. You have one end of the spectrum in these shepherds, and then you have these, these other people who are somewhere in there, the, the wise men of the East. They were very well-educated people. People educated in philosophy, history, theology, science, astronomy, physics. We find the shepherds watching sheep, and then we find the wise men of the East watching stars. And they saw something that drew their attention in that night sky. Back then, no Netflix or anything, it's kind of like you watch the stars. That's your screen, and it's magnificent if you can get away from the light pollution and you can just see it. It is incredible. It's, it's beautiful. And, you know, nowadays we, we just have so many distractions that we don't kind of look at the stars anymore. But a lot of people back then were stargazers. That's kind of what they got to do at night. I mean, how much more do you get to do? And so you watch these stars, and it's how people navigated the world. It's how people discovered new lands, and they followed constellations, and it directed them. It was their map of how they got to different places. It's how people told stories about the world. But something was different at that time to those wise men of the East that drew them west. And I think it was because of these many stories and these many prophecies that they were taught, that they heard, namely from the book of Daniel. 
speaking of a king that would one day come and reign over the entire earth. And these guys are wondering, we want to meet him. This is awesome. And what they observed in that night sky, it, it drew them into this journey to search for the Christ, to gather all the resources possible for them to make this journey and to bring this entourage. And this drew them to Jerusalem to find a king, which in their minds was logical. We are going to search for a king and we're going and we're close to Jerusalem. This is where we're being led. Let's go into Jerusalem. That's where the king is. That's, that's their capital. That's where their kings live. And I think they were led in this direction and they traveled west looking for this king, bringing all their gifts and somewhere along the way they make this logical conclusion. It must be somewhere grand, beautiful. It must be Jerusalem. Let's go there. There they are in front of Herod. And while they're in front of Herod, I think they come to find out that the king they are looking for is not him or anyone that is kind of his descendant. Like, I think they get that pretty clearly once they meet him. And then Herod calls his own scholars and his own scribes to search for what these wise men of the East are talking about. They land at this conclusion that this king they're looking for is in Bethlehem. And so maybe this has happened to you. When the situations of life, they disrupt you, even though those same situations don't disrupt the people around you who are experiencing the same things. Kind of like these wise men of the East who see these stars here. Why is it only them being mobilized to move towards Christ and not everybody else? Why is it only this specific group of guys and, and this caravan moving towards Christ while everyone in the East remains the same? And when the circumstances and situations that draw you to the scriptures and the scriptures point you to Christ, and that's how you find yourself in church today. How did it happen to you and not to everybody else around you? Everyone has the same sky to look at. But it was these particular people led on the journey. And in our lives, everyone has the same scripture access that you and I have. And yet, why are some led to Christ and some are not? You're just doing what you do. Shepherds watch sheep. Wise men watch the stars. And Jesus is inviting us into the story no matter where we're at, where we're from. And another person to point out in the story is the king. In Matthew 2, this is another character here. The, the king is the, the highest place the weird thing is that even though he's in the highest place, has the most power, has the most resources, he's the most worried. I mean, isn't that strange? The most powerful guy in this story, and yet he's the most disturbed. I mean, you would think he should be pretty self-confident. I'm the king. I have everything at my disposal. I have every resource possible. I can do whatever I want. So why is he threatened? Why is he afraid? Because kings like to keep their thrones. And here's a big threat that he's going to no longer be on the throne. It's going to be someone else. And maybe this is you and me. Relatively financially secure 
good job, respected person, lovely family, highly insecure. And I've met a ton of these people, a lot of these people. Herod's the most powerful person in the story, but he's the most insecure person in the story. Insecure about this claim that a baby is going to be king. I mean, it's not even a peer. It's a newborn baby. And he gets all upset about a newborn baby that's going to be king. And this newborn baby will have him bow the knee and confess that he is no longer king, but this baby is king. And he thought, no way. That is not happening. Not a chance I'm giving up my power. Not a chance I'm giving up my throne. In fact, kill them all. Wipe them out. Kill every baby boy under two years old in in the Bethlehem region. I bow to no one. They can bow to me, but I submit to no one. And Herod goes to the extent of this infanticide because he does not want to yield his life to Christ. And he's not alone. But people do terrible things in order to stay in power, in order to wield their influence. They do evil things to keep their throne. And people can identify with shepherds. We can identify with these wise men. I think we can identify with Herod the king. Because there are things that we don't want to yield to Christ. And out of all these three groups of people, I think that the king is someone that most people relate to. Because we're holding on to something. Because we think we're right. We think we know best. We mask these insecurities, and then we lash out based on our own self-righteousness. And we do this all the time. People do this all the time. And you might be appearing secure in your adulthood today. But in reality, your throne is unstable because your life is spiritually unstable. And you might appear that you have all these physical things in place that make you appear stable. But they are in fact not spiritually stable. And how would you know this to be true? If you cling on to things that are temporary, then this is true. If you cling on to things that are not substantial and they pass with time, then you're just like a Herod. See, Herod is who I see most in pastoral ministry by far. By far. I see Herod come out of people all the time. And as a minister, I run into this just repeatedly. People who heard Christ, who who know how to find Christ. They're surrounded by others who know Christ, and yet they don't yield to Christ completely. They're more self-righteous in telling others to find Christ from their throne without dealing with the plank in their own eye. And they cause havoc rather than building up trust in Jesus. In fact, they're resisting Jesus. And here's something about Herod. He has a window of opportunity to make a decision too. He can decide to be for Christ or he can decide to be against Christ. He has a window of opportunity also. And the decision he made would dictate what happens to him for the rest of his life. And he says something really profound that all of us need to think about. It's in Matthew chapter 2 verse 8. 
Extremely profound. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. It's true. It's a profound statement. If he only had a heart to receive that as gospel truth and not take that as an opportunity to act out the evil that was in his heart. But it's a profound statement for us to think about. And Herod, even though very powerful, died without Christ. Therefore died in his sins and not in the kingdom of God today. A child of darkness, not the light. The Christmas story is the same for him as it was for the shepherds, as it was for the wise men. All of them were unnecessary for the gospel to happen but all of them invited into this greater story. And I think we can all identify ourselves in this character, in these three groups of characters, can't we? We all have these elements of shepherds, of just kind of questioning our significance, questioning our meaning, questioning, is this it? We're all like the wise men in terms of some sort of self-sufficiency and kind of like exploring and, and trying to figure things out, even though we're well-educated, that there are logical things that we misstep in, even though things kind of look like they make sense to us, but then we find out we make mistakes. And, and then we all have our own Herods with an element of self-righteousness, with an element of keeping our throne and, and wanting to be right, and, and this is the way it is, and then you're wrong. We all have these elements within us. And yet Christ ministers to all aspects of our personhood. No matter how humble or proud, or poor or rich, uneducated, educated, Christ speaks to us all. He transforms the lives of all who will receive him. And those who harden their hearts to Christ, who, who guard their throne they'll lose that hope of salvation. Out of the three characters here, we find that it is the proud Herod who does not yield to Christ, who does not open his heart to Christ, that he is extremely defensive around his throne and, and these petty things that happen. I mean, you could read history about how terrible this guy is in terms of the people he kills that he feels are a threat to his throne, even his own family. And he's self-absorbed with his own place in the kingdom while forgetting that there are others besides himself in this greater story of the kingdom of God, of the gospel. Insecure about his own place in the kingdom, the only secure place to be is trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the only place of security. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That light, it shines in the darkness. And in darkness, we look to Christ, the Savior of shepherds, of wise men. Even Herod, if he was to accept Christ. He's here for us rebellious people. I think we can agree that we live in days of considerable darkness when at times it seems that 
The darkness is just continually overcoming light. But then God gives us this promise of the gospel. That the darkness never masters the light of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may the light of Christ shine into our minds and into our hearts when we experience darkness. May we be brought closer to Christ in this Advent season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these promises made so long ago. Even before your incarnate arrival 2,000 years ago, this was spoken about very early in the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that we would hold fast, that we would not lose faith knowing that you are the light of the world. And I pray, Lord, for hearts to be changed, for hearts to be directed towards you. We ask, Lord, for a spirit of humility to go forward in your church. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to see ourselves more clearly and to rely on you more, that we are so limited, that we are broken in mind and in our heart and how we see things that We need your heart. We need your vision and how to see things. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone is needing communion elements, please hold up your hand and we can get that over to you. Um, If anyone is wanting or needing prayer, Susanna's in the right front pew. She'd love to pray with you. The first element for communion that we're going to partake in is this wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us. He was in the beginning, and the beginning plan was this sacrifice that he was going to make for our sins to draw us back to holy God. We take this in Jesus' name. Christ told us to partake of these elements until his return. This fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. We take this until his return. Lord Jesus, these symbols, yet they're so simple, but a continual reminder of the promise you made that you are coming back for us, what you did for us. Lord, during this Advent season, I pray that people are drawn to you who are far from you, that those who don't know you will come to know your saving message. In Jesus' name, amen.